Okay, well, good evening. Um, as we begin, I want us uh, to think about this question, okay? Um, what does true, authentic, genuine spirituality consist of? What does true, authentic, genuine spirituality consist of? How we answer this question is important um, because what we evaluate true spirituality to be, that is what we will aspire to and that is what we will pursue. So, what do you think true, authentic, genuine spirituality consists of? I think the world would say um, it's all about finding your true self. Uh, So many young people leave home to go on journeys to uh, foreign lands, to hop islands and to visit temples, all on this great quest to find their true self. This is um, individualistic, it's self-centered, it's all about me, myself and I. But what actually is true, authentic, genuine spirituality? Uh, For me in the past, it looked like having a brain full of theological information and being up the front preaching. And so I spent lots of my time with my head inside books, reading all the uh, latest uh, Gospel Coalition articles and desiring to go to Oak Hill or Cornhill or any other kind of hill I could think of. Um, Not happy uh, with serving unless it was visible or up front or I'd get a good pat on the back at the end. Perhaps that's the same for you. Or perhaps you think it's about spontaneity. It's about wherever the wind takes you in this given moment. And the more spontaneous and out of control or ecstatic that you are, the more the Spirit must be at work in you or or through you. Perhaps you think it's about a certain feeling or experience. It's uh, when that certain song is playing with the lights dimmed in that particular way. And your hands held up in that perfect angle with the strobe light hitting you in the face just at the right moment as the smoke machine fills the room. And so you travel from church to church, hopping around, looking for that perfect experience and that perfect feeling. Or perhaps you think it's those guys who go overseas. Those guys who give up everything, perhaps even their own lives, to plant churches and head up mission trips in faraway lands. Perhaps you think it's about how triumphant or powerful or successful you are. And so the more health, wealth, and prosperity you have, the more the Lord clearly must be blessing you, and so the more spiritual you must be. Perhaps you think it's about having faith that could move mountains and prayers that go on forever, or about having visions and dreams, or about being able to speak in tongues, or having remarkable spiritual gifts, activities, or experiences. What does true, authentic, genuine spirituality consist of? Well, this is the question we're going to be thinking about tonight, and it's the uh, a question or issue Paul uh, is addressing. You see, Paul's had some reports about what the church in Corinth are like, and he's had a letter from them. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses some of the issues 
uh, the church at Corinth have written to him about. We, we don't know exactly what Corinth wrote to Paul, uh, but we do have some clues. So in chapter 12, verse 1, it's clear that they wrote to him about spiritual gifts. And we can know from chapter 14 and verse 36 to 38 that they think that these gifts um, mean that they are particularly spiritual. And so it seems Paul is addressing and actually correcting their wrong views on what it is to be spiritual. And he's teaching them what true spirituality consists of. Uh, Corinth is a church in conflict. Conflict with one another, yes, but particularly in conflict with Paul and his ways and his teaching. So Paul, with full apostolic authority, in chapters 12 to 14, seeks to inform and correct this deluded, wandering, and worldly church. Uh, In the beginning of chapter 12, Paul taught that at the very foundation and heart of true spirituality was the acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord. It is to sit under and submit to the Lordship of Christ. In the rest of chapter 12, he taught that um, as we become Christians, we come to share in uh, the Spirit And the Spirit gives different gifts to different people, uh, but all are equally part of the body, and each Christian gifted for the common good of the body. And at the end of chapter 12, verse 27 uh, to 31, uh, Paul reminds Corinth, we're all one body, but we don't all have the same gift. So um, no, we're not all apostles. No, we're not all prophets. Uh, No, we're not all teachers, etc. But he does call them to desire the higher gifts, the greater gifts, the gifts that are most valuable and effective uh, for the common good and upbuilding of the body. He calls them to desire these greater gifts, and yet, uh, chapter 12, verse 31, and yet I will show you the most excellent way, Paul says. Paul knows their worldliness and their self-centeredness, so Paul must teach them a still more excellent way. He teaches them that true, authentic, genuine spirituality is demonstrated by this more excellent way of love expressed in attitude and in action towards others. So let's dive into chapter 13 and see what Paul uh, teaches about the more excellent way of love. And Firstly, he teaches that love is everything, verses 1 to 3. I'm going to read those. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now there's lots of debate over these early verses of chapter 13, especially over the nature of tongues, but I want you to park your questions, save them for the Q&A that's coming up, um, because I think it's coming to the text with the wrong question. I think Paul's point's actually really transparent because he makes it three times. Remarkable spiritual gifts or activities or experiences without love 
are nothing. They are worthless. Paul progresses from the gift of tongues to faith that can move mountains to the ultimate spiritual sacrifice of martyrdom. And yet he says, without love, these things, they're nothing. They are worthless. These would have been the things that Corinth aspired to as super spiritual, as the pinnacle of Christian maturity. And yet Paul says, without love, these things are nothing. They are worthless. And this is true for us. Whatever we think true, genuine, authentic spirituality looks like or consists of, if we don't have love for God and God's people, it is worthless. You can preach, prophesy, go on mission trips, pray for hours on end, have fog machines or speak in tongues until the cows come home. If you don't have love for God and his people, those things are worthless. They are nothing. I think Paul uses um, hyperbole to stress his point. Uh, So the point in verse 1 is, uh, even if, even if I spoke every language under heaven, even if I spoke in the heavenly language of the very angels themselves, but don't have love, well then I'm merely a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. He goes on, if I had all the prophetic powers in the universe and could fathom all mysteries and and I had all knowledge, that is, if I could grasp the very heights to the very depths of God's redemptive plan to its very uttermost, if I could understand all that, but I don't have love, well then, I'm nothing. If I had faith that could move mountains or if I gave up everything, even my own life, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. In other words, love is everything. Without it, we are spiritually bankrupt, no matter what gift or activity or experience you have or possess. Without love, we are nothing. And it's important to stress that these gifts and activities and experiences, they're not bad In fact, they're very good things. Paul says, desire them. Paul here, however, is not criticizing the gifts themselves, but those who would use them and boast in them and exalt themselves as spiritual when all the while refusing to love others and use those things for the common good. Paul is addressing those who belittle others as if if they don't experience these things, then they're a second-class Christian. Well, Paul says there's nothing to boast in. Without love, you are nothing. Love is everything. It really is the true measure of spiritual maturity. You can have all the remarkable gifts and experiences you want, but without love, you are nothing. Love is everything. But, Paul goes on to say, love is not like you. And that's our second point. Love is not like you. Let me read verses 4 to 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes always perseveres. 
If love is everything, the question may come back. Well then, Paul, what does this love look like? And Paul goes on in the next few verses to describe what this love looks like. All the words he uses are action words. Um, that is love. It, with love, it's not enough to talk the talk. Um, you must walk the walk. Love is an attitude, yes, but it's an attitude expressed in action. Uh, these verses are famous verses. They're often used at weddings, and they truly are beautiful verses. Um, but we must remember the context Paul is writing into. And as we do that, we'll begin to see that these lovely words are, in fact, stinging rebuke. As Paul describes love here, he describes it using particularly anti-Corinthian language. Love is everything, Paul says, but love is not like you, Corinth. And if we're truly honest, as far as we're like Corinth, love is not like us either. We do not live up to this description of love. I'm sure we'd all like to. I'm sure we'd all agree it would be a good thing and the world would be, the be uh, would be a better place for it, but no one really does. And we'd all love to be patient, uh, but then we go to hub or to life group, and when people are slow to get what you're saying or they're just generally hard to get along with or they differ with you on a, on a slightly on a theological issue, our patience goes out the window and it's replaced with pride, rage, frustration. And we'd all love to be kind, but then we find ourselves using hurtful words towards others or about a fellow brother and sister in Christ. We'd love to not hold grudges and be forgiving, but then when we're really wronged and it really hurts, that becomes a whole lot harder to actually do. And we'd love to not be self-seeking, but when we walk through those doors, what's on our minds? Is it others? Is it how we can love and serve those around us? We'd love to hate evil, but then we fall into that sin again and we think those wicked thoughts again and we delight in sin again and we say those unloving words again. We'd love to rejoice in the truth, but then we're too lazy or too ill-disciplined to read it or meditate upon it, let alone actually seek to live it out or encourage others to do the same. Uh, we leave the sermon behind at 7.45 and we go on to talk about the more important things in life. Love is everything, but the problem is, love is not like me and it's not like you. And by nature, we are not like this. And we certainly do not live up to this description of love. But the good news of the gospel is, Jesus does. The gospel is that Jesus lived out the truly humble, selfless, forgiving, loving life for us. His love was more than just talk. It ultimately took him to the cross to pay the price for our failure to love God and neighbor as we should. And it's only as we grasp this, it's only as we grasp more and more the great love shown to us it's only as we grasp this that we will then uh, be motivated in the power of the Spirit to give ourselves to live lives like this too. It's only as we realize the great humility and patience and kindness and forgiveness and selfless love that Christ showed us when we were still enemies and rebels and completely unlovely. It's only as we grasp this that God first loved us 
that we will begin to desire to love others. Love is everything, Paul says, but what does love look like? Well, it's not like me, and it's not like you, but it is like Christ. And so I thought it'd be great if this week, every morning, as you wake up and you read uh, the Bible in the morning, you'd read these verses again. You'd meditate on these verses and you would pray in these verses. You'd pursue and desire to be like these verses. You'd confess and repent when you're not like these verses. And then, asking God through the power of the Spirit, would we seek to live out these verses to be more loving, to be more Christ-like. True spirituality, it's not measured, uh, sorry, true spirituality is measured in a life of love. Love is everything. But love is not like Corinth. It's not like me. And it's not like you. However, it does supremely matter. It is the more excellent way because love never fails and never ends. And that's our last point. Love never fails and never ends. Verses 8 to 13. Let me read those. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what, in, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I taught like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And Paul demonstrates the priority of this all-embracing life of love because gifts cease, but love lasts forever. Love is what supremely matters because it, fa- it never fails and it never ends. I think that's the point of verses 8 to 10. A prophecy cease, tongues will cease, gifts will cease, for they are partial. That is, they're not exhaustive, they're not complete. But one day, when perfection comes, when completeness comes, when the Lord Jesus returns, those partial things will disappear. I think that's the point of verse 11 with the illustration of the child. When, when Paul was, like a, uh, was a child, he thought like a child. He spoke like a child. He reasoned like a child. He had temper tantrums in Liddles like a child. He played with toys like a child. He sat in those little red cars at the barbershop like a child. But when he became a man, when full maturity came, he put away those childish things. He put the ways of childhood behind him. And that's exactly what will happen to us when the Lord Jesus returns and completeness comes. What was partial incomplete and childish, well, that will pass away. The gifts, they will pass away. We will put them behind us and we will press on into full maturity. And Paul explains that again using another illustration in verse 12. He says, now, that is in this present time, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then, when Jesus returns, we shall see face to face. Now, We know in part, but then, when fullness and completeness comes, 
we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. And doesn't mean we'll become all-knowing. Uh, but the knowing word there, I think, is a relational word. We will know God fully. We will see him and know him as he really is in all the fullness of his glory and majesty. Now, in his words, we get merely a reflection, as in a mirror. Then, we will see face to face. When completeness comes and Jesus returns, when we, his people, will be gathered to live with him forever, we will no longer need gifts. We will no longer need mere reflections. We will no longer need our childish ways because we will dwell in his presence and we will see him face to face. What we have in part now, then we truly will have in full. And so, verse 13, these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Gifts are useful, but faith, hope, and love are true measures of spiritual maturity. And the greatest of these is love. It is the all-embracing virtue which is foundational to all else. It is the very summit of the Christian life and, of tr- and the true measure of spiritual maturity. Love is what supremely matters because it never fails. It never ends. It goes on into eternity even as we grow up fully and reach spiritual maturity even as we see Christ face to face. Love remains. And so... To pinch chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love. Well, as we draw to a close, let's go back to the question from the beginning. What does true, authentic, genuine spirituality look like? Hopefully we've seen that true, authentic, genuine spirituality is demonstrated by this more excellent way of love expressed in attitude and action. It is this life of love that we are to pursue, to hunger for, to give ourselves to. Love is everything, but it's not like you, but it is what supremely matters because it never fails and it never ends. And so, my desire is that as a fruit of this evening, we would all have minds and hearts that seek this whole, uh, this way of life, uh, this whole uh, life way of love, that we would give ourselves to that. My prayer is that we would all pursue the more excellent way. So let me pray uh, to finish. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it um, not only uh, corrects us uh, when we go astray, but it teaches us the right path. Forgive us for when we have pursued a false spirituality that is ultimately focused on self. And please help us to pursue the most excellent way, the way of love the way of Christ. Thank you that you first loved us. Help us to grasp this love that we would begin to love others. In Jesus' name, amen.